thinking, thinking, and we are on part 10. This is the longest series I've ever preached my whole life, and it's amazing because I have hyper ADD, so I can't really stay with anything, but this has been very cool because it's been different subjects, and today we're going to talk about anxiety. Anxiety. Every single day we have opportunities to be anxious, and most of the things that we are anxious about, most of the things that we lose our peace about, they're little things. They're not really that big of a deal. We blow up over small things. We get worried and anxious over something that really doesn't matter at all. We're not choosing our battles wisely. We're just fighting everything around us that we don't like and that doesn't feel good in life. We're upset with a a friend that we know is going to be in our life for probably the rest of our life, but we blow about something small. We're worried. We're anxious about money. Life is full of frustrations. Life is full of weird people that get on your nerves at work and say things you don't want them to say and sit in your seat at church. And these things can very easily steal our peace and cause us to be anxious in life. I was thinking the other day, um, how many times have I been anxious or worried about money or finances and it never changed anything? Like all my worrying and staying up at night and thinking, it never allowed any more money to be in my bank account, you know, and God's always taking care of me. I honored him with the tithe. I figured out the way to never have anxiety the rest of your life. How many of you would like to know that? that I, I figured out the exact way. And listen, this is the best thing. If you do this, if you can do this, nothing for the rest of your life, you will never face anxiety or worry, okay? That is, if everything in your life goes exactly how you want it to go each day, you will never have anxiety again, okay? That's the key to it. Y'all can all leave, say hallelujah, amen. But the problem is, 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 is that's never gonna happen, unfortunately. Nothing's ever gonna go our way in life. We have to be idealistic. I'm all for proclaiming God's favor and knowing that he's in control and in charge, but we have to realize things are not gonna go our way. There are gonna be slow drivers in the right lane. There are gonna be people who are going 45 and a 55. There are gonna be people who don't say the right thing or don't do the right thing, and these things can easily cause us to lose our peace and get upset. But the Bible says in Matthew 6, 27, has anyone ever added one inch to his height by worrying or being anxious? If so, Mark would be a lot taller than me. But (laughs) for those of you that love Mark, who's out of town and I can say whatever I want to say about him, if this were true, some of y'all would be 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Now, I realize that every one of us battle anxiety on some level throughout the day on on certain things. But some of you in here, man, y'all battle it like crazy. I mean, like you worry about everything. I mean, you worry about everything you say to somebody. Did I offend them? Did I do this right? You worry about your kids the whole time they're at school. You're constantly worried about your job because you and your boss have friction. and It's nothing but anxiety. And I want you to understand today, peace is highly underrated. If you don't have peace in life, this is something you need to have. Once you get your peace back, you will realize how much more better your quality of life will be. I heard somebody say that worry is like a rocking chair. You're always moving, but you're never Never going anywhere. In Luke chapter 10, there's a story of these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they invited Jesus over for dinner. And think about having the Son of God over to your house. And Martha was so busy getting everything just right. I mean, she wanted to make sure that the best china was cleaned and out on the table. She wanted to make sure the food was cooked to perfection. I practiced that like three times perfection. She wanted to make sure the house was clean. She wanted to make sure that TBN was on the television. So when Jesus came in, he saw, you know, Billy Graham on TV and stuff like that. She wanted to make sure the old family Bible was wiped off. So it looked like people had been reading it. She got the whole table and everything in the house already. And she was working and she looked around and she couldn't find her sister, Mary. 
She was so upset, where could Mary be? And she finally found Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in the living room while she's busy working. The Bible says in Luke 10, verse 40, that Martha was overly occupied and too busy worrying about all the work she had to do. Let's just stop right there. If you're sitting next to somebody right now that you're married to, and they are always too busy worrying about all the work they have to do, you have my permission to pinch them as hard as you possibly can later on tonight. Okay, so it goes on to say, she didn't even say anything to her sister Mary. She said something to Jesus. She thought she was so right. She wanted God to rebuke her sister for her. She said, Lord, don't you care that my sister left me alone to serve? You tell her, now this is a strong woman in here, you tell her to come and help me. Now what I want you to see about this story is that Martha was doing very good things. Everybody say good things. I mean, she was making sure the food was cooked. She, listen, somebody's got to pay the bills around here, right? Somebody has to clean up after these children. Somebody has to respond to all the Facebook messages every 30 minutes. Somebody has to check their email. Somebody has to make sure their phone's working and all the texts are coming through. Somebody's got to do all these things. They're busy and worrying and overly occupied. And I find in life, the good things can keep us from God's best things. In verse 41, Jesus said, Martha, you're anxious and you're troubled about so many things. But one thing is essential, and Mary chose what is best. In other words, they both had the same amount of time before, and they could have done the same thing. They had the same amount of hours, the same amount of energy, let's say. They had the same opportunity. One could do all these things over here, and the other one could sit at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus was saying, this stuff is good, but there's something that's actually essential. The substance is actually better, and the good will always keep us from the best. If you want to continue to live an anxious life, keep doing good things all the time, and it's going to end up wearing you out. And one day, hopefully sooner than later, you'll realize the good things can actually keep you from the best things. Now, who we are in this story, Mary or Martha, will determine your quality of life. I'm sure some of you are thinking, no, 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 my quality of life is determined by how hard I work, and if I get all that money and that raise, I have friends that are millionaires, and they have more anxiety than you could ever imagine. So don't think, if I make more money, then I'll be more peaceful. If I can get these people to like me and stop talking about me, then I'll be more peaceful. If I can get this miracle, this answer to my prayer, then I'll be more, no, no, no. All of those things are, out, are external. If you want peace in your life, it's an internal thing. And your quality of life, your quality of life will determine whether you're Mary or whether you're Martha. Um, my question to you is this. If you only had six months left to live, what kind of things would you be anxious about in life? How about this? If your spouse only had six months left to live, if one of your children only had six months left to live, who would you be in this story? Who would you turn into? The Mary, doing what is essential, or the Martha, overly occupied, too busy worrying? Now, from that story, I'm going to give you a few points to help you with anxiety today. Here's the first point. Don't sweat the small stuff. And if you know the phrase, don't sweat the small stuff, you know that it's all... No, any of y'all read that book back in the 70s? Anybody in here? Did anybody in here graduate from 
Kindergarten? Okay, here we go. So don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all, or did anybody go to Myrtle Beach High School? And it's all small stuff. Most of the things in life that cause us anxiety, it's not the big things, it's the little things. You lose your keys, uh, you know, your, your wife squeezes the toothpaste the wrong way, one of your kids spills something, forgets their homework. Um, here's the thing I find, we gotta learn how to choose our battles wisely, okay? Some battles in life were not meant to be fought. Some battles that you go through in life, some things that irritate you, just because something irritates you doesn't mean you're supposed to fight about it. Just because something causes you some unrest doesn't mean you're supposed to deal with it right then. A lot of these things that are causing you anxiety are things you should be letting go of, getting rid of, and forgetting all about. It's so interesting. We can have a perfect life and everything be great at work. We're making money. The bills are paid. We're healthy. Our kids are healthy. But there can be one problem in your marriage, just one problem in your marriage, and your whole day is ruined. You, hold, you, you lose peace, you're full of anxiety, or your marriage can be perfect and everything's fine with the finances and your kids are okay, but there's one coworker that gets on your nerves so bad it causes you anxiety all day long. These things are just a part of life and they weren't meant to always be fought. They were meant to let go of. Let it go, get rid of it. Don't sweat the small stuff. The Bible talks about how we are in the army of the Lord and we're supposed to put on the, 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 the armor of God to fight against the principalities of darkness. That is not a Greek word for your mother-in-law. It can be close translated, you know, but, but it's not, okay? We're not supposed to be fighting against each other all the time. The, the war is in the spirit realm. Let things go. When you get in a fight with one of your friends, your spouse, just let it. It's not really that big of a deal, is it? I mean, if you think about it, it's a lot of times these little things that are causing us all this worry and anxiety and getting all upset, losing our cool. It says in Song of Solomon 2.15, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. And I think in life, something that I've done is I've learned to categorize my problems. Uh, there's three types of categories and problems. There's five-minute problems. There's five-hour problems, and there's five-month problems, okay? Five-minute problems is you got to go stop and get gas, and you're five minutes late for a meeting. You didn't think you were going to have to do that. Five-minute problem is, you know, somebody, you're, you're out of toilet paper, and you're yelling for somebody in the house, bring me some toilet paper, and if you live alone, that stinks for you, literally. Um, Five-hour five, five five, five problem. Five-hour problem is you drop your cell phone, and you got to go get a new case, or you got to get a new carrier, and you know that's just a crate. You just hate dealing with that. It's a five-hour problem. Five-hour problems is you get a flat tire. You got to stop and take your car somewhere. Five-month problems are you lose a loved one. A loved one passes away, or you go through a divorce, or somebody close to you has a disease they're battling, or you lose your job. Those could be five-month problems. Here's what we do. We treat five-minute problems as if they were five-month problems, and we wonder why we're living so stressed out, so on edge, we're missing out on what is essential in life. There's some essential things that I promise you won't cause you any anxiety. Coming to church, you shouldn't have any anxiety. Just lounging around with your family and your kids while they're little shouldn't cause you any anxiety. There's certain things that are essential in life that we should be focusing on, okay? Now, this next point is very, very critical and very important. Discover what your little foxes are and fix what you can fix. I find there's a lot of people, especially with my personality, 
that um, they're overly anxious, all occupied, and things that bother them, they rather complain about it sometimes or yell about it or blow up instead of fix it. There's some things you can fix. Your garage that's all messy that you keep tripping over stuff and it makes you fix it, clean up the thing or give something away. I'll give you some examples in my life, things that were little foxes that I changed that, that changed my life. One was um, that I could never find my keys. Now, if you want to see demons come out of a pastor, you find a pastor. When he loses his keys and he's got to be somewhere at a meeting, I plan my day out strategically. If I have to be somewhere at 9.30, I know that I need to leave my house at 9.29 so I can be there on time. And if I can't find my keys, man, the devil just comes out. I think I can feel horns start to grow through my hair. When I, so you know what I did was I bought this $2 thing I put it in the refrigerator and it hangs my keys and I became habitual in putting my keys. So now I always know where my keys are at. Another thing was that I would always get so, so upset and uptight when I couldn't find matching socks, like everyday socks, you know, like white socks. I'd have one tall Reebok and one short Nike on, and I, it looks stupid when you're wearing shorts, but you know, I'd go around like that. And so I'm a, I'm a cheapskate, but I spent the best $35 of my life. I dumped out all of my socks. I mean, I threw them all away, and I went out and got 20 pair of the exact same white sock. So if the dog eats one, it's okay. If the child, one of my kids take one and hide it. It's okay. If I get a hole in one, no big deal. Not like golf a hole in one, but like a, I get a hole in my sock. But anyway, if I get a hole in one, it's not, I just find it, get out the drawer and they're all the same. In my profession, I would have people uh, always come to me and say, John Paul, I want to talk to you. Can I make an appointment? And I say, well, what do you want to talk about? And they wouldn't tell me. They said, no, 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 we'll wait until we meet you know, three days from now, next week. I said, no, 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 I want to know. Now, if we're going to meet, let's meet right now. Don't call me and say you want to meet and not tell me what it's about. And man, I couldn't sleep at night until I got to that meeting. I didn't know, were they mad? Were they sad? Were they glad? Were they bad? <laughs> they weren't rad. That's a fad. Anyway, and so... um. So I didn't know why they wanted to meet. And so I learned after about four or five years, I remember specifically praying out loud and saying, God, I can't handle this stress. Is this what it means to be a pastor and someone's wanting to meet with me and I don't know if they're upset, if they're happy. God, I just can't, I couldn't sleep at night. I'd, I'd come up with 10 different scenarios. Are they wanting to talk about this? And if so, I'll say this. Are they wanting to? So finally, I, I decided that when people say they want to meet with me, I'll tell them to email me first. Email me in detail what you want to meet about because my first response is never the godly response in any situation. I don't care if you're asking for advice or anything. I need time to pray about it, to seek God, to seek wisdom. And so I ask people, do you know that 90% of the people that ask to meet with me and I say email me first, they just don't meet. They don't even want to do it, which I discovered they don't really want to spend time with me or hear what I have to say. They just wanted to waste my time or make themselves feel better or something. And I don't feel bad about it at all. Email me, let me know what's going on in your life or we're not going to meet. You have to learn what those things are in your life. The little foxes, you can fix them. Studies show that we are 70% more likely to have a heart attack on Monday than any other day of the week. That tells me that some of us in this room have things that we need to change simply about our Mondays and how we respond on Monday morning. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not fret or have anxiety about anything, but in everything pray giving thanks to God. I'm curious, we call ourselves believers and we come to church and worship. How often do you really seriously pray about the things that cause you anxiety? How often do you really say, God, I want to hear from you today. I need your wisdom. Speak to me. Give me options on how to fix this problem in my life.
I heard about this lady that at the end of the day, she was so upset with God. I mean, she was telling God what an awful day she had. She said, God, I am your child. I'm your daughter. And nothing went right in my life today. I had the worst day ever. I am so upset, God. Why did you let my day go so bad? She said, first, I woke up uh, late because my alarm didn't go off. And I was late for work. And I was so embarrassed walking in there late. Then I was at lunch with all my girlfriends, and we all ordered food, and when the food came, they brought me the wrong sandwich. I had to send it back. By the time the right sandwich came, everyone had got done eating and left me. Then on the way home, I was talking to someone. It was a very important phone call. God and the cell phone dropped the call. I didn't hear what they had to say. I really wanted to hear what was going on, and God, that ruined my day, and if that wasn't enough, that night, I just wanted to go home, put my feet in the foot massager, and relax, and the stinking thing wouldn't even turn on. God, nothing went right in my life today. God responded to her and said, daughter, let me tell you about your day. First of all, there was a junk driver on the road the same time that you would have been going to work on the same road, and I wanted to spare your life today, so I made sure that your alarm didn't go off and you woke up late and didn't, and didn't get into that accident. Then whenever you were at lunch with all your friends, the person that made your sandwich was sick, and I didn't want you to catch what they had, so I made sure it got sent back and somebody else prepared your lunch for you. Even though you had to eat by yourself, at least you didn't end up sick and upset. Then whenever you were on your way home from work and you were talking to your so-called quote-unquote friend, she was just about to fill you up with a bunch of gossip and trash and contaminate the rest of your day, and I didn't want that to get inside of your mind, so I made sure the cell phone dropped that call. Then that night when you wanted to relax and put your feet in the foot massager, it actually had a short in it. If it had plugged in and turned on, it would have turned off the electricity in your entire house, and I didn't think that you wanted to sit at home in the dark all night long. Daughter, I am watching out for you, and there is a reason for every single circumstance that you go through on a daily basis. I wonder how many things that we're going to find out about in heaven that are causing us so much anxiety, and God's going to smile and say, I had it all planned out just the way I wanted it to go. Jesus said in John 14, 27, I give you my peace. Do not let your heart be troubled. One translation says this, stop allowing yourselves to be agitated, <clears throat> disturbed, fearful, and unsettled. Here's what he's saying. Do whatever it takes on your part to be anxiety-free. One time, Jesus told his closest followers, his disciples, the ones that he hung out with and loved the most, and he said, listen, guys, I want y'all to obey me and get into this boat. We're going to cross this lake. Come on, get it. And they're so excited to do what their master told them to do. Just as they got in the boat and got out on the water, it says in Mark 4:37, a furious storm arose. Not just a storm not just a little bit of wind, a furious storm arose. Here's the problem. I thought that if I obeyed God and I went to church and I tithed my income and I worshiped and I went to Bible study and I did a devotion every single day without missing even on Saturday, I thought if I did everything right and obeyed God, I would never go through any storms in life. But sometimes because you're obeying God, you're going to face a furious storm in your life. No problem. Mark 4.39 says, Jesus told the storm to peace. Be still, and the storm ceased. Here's what I want you to see. In life, it feels like the storm is in control. In life, it feels like our boss is in control. And if they like you, you'll succeed. And if they don't like you, you'll fail. 
when the Bible says promotion doesn't come from the north, south, east, west, it comes from God and God alone. But it feels like the company that you work for is in control. It feels like the government's in control. It feels like that disease is in control. It feels like that addiction, the secret addiction, nobody knows about. It feels like that that's in control. But we just read something very important, and that is this. God is in control even of the storms that I face in life. He's in control of it all. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. Fix what you can fix and trust God with what you can't fix. Back in 2008, my son Asher that just was, went to Children's Church, he was born with a malformation in his spinal cord. When he was three months old, through a series of events, we discovered that there was something underneath his brain at the top of his spinal cord preventing flow down his spinal cord. And, and he, um, we went to MUSC. And um, it was, we were there for two months. It was an awful time because every day we would see him digress and he would lose body parts. And he ended up, just before the surgery, not being able to do anything except for see. He couldn't cry, couldn't breathe on his own. He was practically in a coma. And the doctors all told us that he was going to die. Not one doctor said he's going to live and be healthy. One doctor said he might survive the surgery, but he'll be in a wheelchair the rest of his life. Um, after the surgery, they were amazed at how good it went, and they came and told us, they said it went great, but he'll probably be here for three to six months to recover. We were there for three days, and we left and came home. But what really upset me was, is I just started the church, and I stepped out in faith, and man, it's scary being a pastor. It's scary stepping out on your own. I thought, God, I gave you my whole life. I dedicated this to you. I was scared to death. I obeyed you. I stepped out in the boat just like you told me to, and now my son is dying. And then after he was healed, I was still upset. I thought, God, why didn't you heal him on day one? I know you could have done it. You parted the Red Sea. You did miracle after miracle for other people. I've seen my friends get healed. Why did it take two months and all that time and all that heartache for you to finally heal my son? Why not on day one? We were there for about six weeks. They were getting ready for the surgery on the seventh week. And six weeks into it, we, I'd been in the hospital room 24-7, not left. I decided to go for a walk. And I was walking through MUSC, the children's unit, and I ended up at this thing called the atrium. The atrium is probably a room about this big, and it's nothing but glass everywhere, and you can see it's a beautiful view outside. And there's about four stories of hospital rooms all around it so that kids can see other kids playing in this atrium, the kids that can't even leave their hospital rooms. Some of these children are children who are battling cancer, and their parents just drop them off and leave. Like, literally, they, they come from another state, and they find out their child's dying, and they can't handle it, so they drop their kid off, and they literally just leave, not even knowing if their child survives or not. And you see these children with no hair, and they're holding their IVs, and then I'm in the atrium, and there's children with their nurses, you know, going through what they're going through. And I'm walking through, and I don't really care about anybody else but my son at the time. All I want to know is, God, are you going to heal my son? Over in the corner of the atrium, there was a piano. Somehow I made my way to the piano, and I sat down, and out of the thousands of songs I could have played, I have a huge repertoire. I mean, Christian, old school, new stuff, secular. Out of everything I could have played, I decided to play Amazing Grace. I thought it's so, you know, simple, just it was on my mind, and I played it very childlike rendition of it, just barely able to move. I hadn't eaten in such a long time. And I started playing Amazing Grace, and all of a sudden this 10-year-old boy, 9 or 10, sits next to me on the piano bench, and he's healthy as a horse. I mean, I can tell he's not there because he's sick. And he just sat there as I played a few verses, and as soon as I got done playing, there, a crowd ended up behind me, and you know, they clapped, and, and the little boy 
turned to what looked like to be his mom or grandma, and he buried his head in, in them and, and cried his eyes out, and they just walked away. I didn't think much of it. The next day, I was um, in my hospital room, and this grandmother, the boy's grandmother, comes to my room, finds me, and she said, I need to thank you for the song you played yesterday. I said, well, no big deal. It's just, you know, mate. she said, no, no, it's a very big deal. She says, my oldest grandson, the little boy's older brother, was in a four-wheeling accident just a few weeks ago, and he came here in a vegetative state. He was in a coma, and they had to pull the plug on him yesterday about five minutes before you were in the atrium. And as soon as they pulled the plug, the younger brother runs out of the hospital room, and we can't find him anywhere. He ended up in the atrium. We saw him through the window. We ran down. He was sitting next to you, and she said the brother that died, the four-wheeler, he was a piano player as well, and the only song he ever taught his little brother how to play was Amazing Grace. She said, I just wanted to come and find you and thank you for reminding us that God is always in control. You know, when she told me that at first, I remember thinking, praise God, that's great, but what about my son? <laughs> when is he going to be healed? Proverbs 16, 9 says, we make our own plans, but the Lord decides where we will go. One of the things we can do to get rid of anxiety in life is to realize that God's in control of our storms. He's in control of the good days. He's in control of the bad days. We can't avoid every storm, but we can choose not to let the storms get in us. A few weeks ago, Micah and I took a boat out on the waterway, and one of the things about a boat is there's a plug on the back of it to where when water gets in the boat and you come out of the water, you unplug it and all the water that was inside comes out. And before you put the boat in the water, you want to make sure to plug it up so the boat doesn't sink. Well, I backed the boat up in the waterway, and I was so excited, and I just didn't like the way I had backed it up. It was a little bit angled the wrong. So I pulled it up to try one more time. And when I did, these teenagers run over to me and they say, man, man, you forgot to plug your boat in. The thing was going to sink out there in the water. And so I went back there and water's just pouring out of the boat. And I was so grateful, but I learned something extremely deep that day. Now this is very spiritual. Okay. You have to be spiritually mature to get this. You can't be Baptist. You have to really maybe Southern Baptist or con Southern Baptist convention. Okay. <laughs> You can't be Episcopal either. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. You can't have graduated from Myrtle Beach High School. That's what you can't do. Okay, here you go. So this is deep. Ready? Ships don't sink because of the water around them. They sink when water gets inside of them. Ooh, y'all need to write that down. Y'all need to write that down. Some of y'all need a mind plug. There are certain people that you allow to come into your life and make anxiety for you. You got to create space between you and that person and plug up your mind because they're taking all of your peace. Some of you allow certain situations that you could easily fix and change to ruin your day because you don't have your mind plugged up. Stop allowing things that are going to cause you to sink to get inside of your mind on a daily basis. Here's one last point. I'll tell you this and I'll let you go, but this is big. If you get this, you will, you will have a lot more peace in your life. And that is, we can't change anybody. I wish we could. We can't change our boss. We can't change our spouse. Can't change our friends. I mean, you can, you can change friends, but you can't change that particular friend. Um, if we could make people love us, our life would be so much better, but we can't make anybody love us. One time God told 
Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And they had this huge conversation. Moses is like, well, how, who do I tell him sent me? God said, I am that I am that I am. They talked some more. Moses said, well, how do I know that, you know, they're going to listen? And so God says, well, I'm going to do some miracles. Throw the stick down. It became a snake. Pick it up, and it's a stick again. Hand in the robe, and it's leprous. Hand out, and it's healed. On and on. Moses said, well, I can't talk. God said, well, get your brother Aaron. I mean, it was this long, drawn-out conversation. Finally, Moses said, okay, I'll go tell Pharaoh. Let my my people go, you know, four words, five syllables. Finally, he said, I'll do it. And at the end of the conversation, God said, oh, one more thing, Moses. I forgot to tell you this. Exodus 4.21, I'm going to make Pharaoh's heart stubborn and he's not going to let the people go. I'm sure Moses thought, wait a minute, we just spent three hours discussing building my faith and my confidence and I'm going to go tell everybody and you're telling me you're going to fix it where he's going to tell me no? Here's what God was saying. Trust me, Moses, I'm even in control of your enemies. I'll make your enemy like you. If I want to, I'll make them hate you. It does not matter. You trust me. There's a scripture, it's not up there, but it says that the the, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he will turn it whichever way he chooses. That means God's in control of our storms, he's in control of our enemies, he's in control of our life. I read some surveys that say 25% of the people that you meet will never like you, no matter what. 25% of the people you meet, they won't like you, but they could be persuaded to like you. 25% of the people you meet, they could like you, but they could be persuaded not to like you. But then there's 25% of the people you meet and they will love you and stand by you no matter what. One thing that brings your life much more peace is when you focus on the 25% that will love you no matter what. And the other 75% can kiss your big Bible. Okay, so let me close with this. I know we talked about there's five-minute problems we all face. There's five-month problems that some of y'all have gone through, and you're going through five-month problems. So let me talk to you just for two seconds about that, and I'm going to let you go. If there's anyone that God would answer a prayer for when it comes to these big five-month problems that do steal our peace in life, it would be the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote half the New Testament. He was highly educated. He was very effective in ministry. He did a lot of things for God. If there's anybody who God would answer prayers for, it would be Paul. And Paul prayed three times, God, remove this thorn in my flesh. Three times. The thorn in the flesh, it could have been a physical ailment. We don't know. It could have been a spiritual demonic attack. It could have been just a person. It could have been uh, a mental fearful. We don't know what it was he was battling, but he prayed three times. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I begged the Lord. I begged make this suffering go away. He begged. In other words, he said, God, I'm doing my best for you. <laughs> There's no fault, God. I'm doing everything I can. I'm giving. I'm serving. I'm writing the New Testament. I have a good attitude. God, I'm taking care of people. I'm starting churches. I'm training up pastors. God, I'm begging you, take this from me. And in the next scripture, verse 9, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. One translation, and I love this, it says, my love is more than enough for you. Is there something today that you have been begging God to fix in your life? Begging him to fix. Don't give up. But until he removes the thorn, enjoy your life anyway. Until he does the answer to that miracle, just trust God and just ride on the boat with him. Until he fixes that problem and brings you that answer to prayer, it opens up that door. Don't let it steal your peace. 
and cause you to have anxiety from one day to the next. Enjoy where you're at. Bloom right where you're planted. Be fruitful and productive right where God has you until he does. And you know what? The truth is, I hate to say this, he may not do it, but one day you'll find out why. I'll close with a poem, and this is it. I know I said I'm closing like five times, but anyway, I really am going to close this time. So I have a favorite part to every sermon. Every sermon I write, I always have a favorite, okay? Most of the time, my favorite is not what anybody else likes. This is my favorite, okay? This, this might not phase you. This, you might think this is a waste of two minutes of your life, but this is actually my favorite. It's a poem written back in the 1800s, and I read this poem probably three or four times a week. It's by Annie Johnson Flint. She was an orphan girl and she was blind, she had arthritis most of her life, and she had cancer. So let me just say it this way. Y'all are in way better off position than she ever was, okay? And she wrote this. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day's half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that your need will exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father both you and your load will upbear. His love has no limits his grace has no measure, his power no boundary that's known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth and giveth and giveth and giveth and giveth, and giveth again. Amen.